Hello, and welcome to the Southern Gulf Islands Heritage Recordings. My name is Chris Wokaluk, and I'm proud to present Volume 2 in this series with Constance Octorloni. The purpose of these recordings is to provide historical and personal recordings of longtime Southern Gulf Islands residents, so their stories may be preserved for future generations to hear. This recording took place in July of 2019 over a single recording session at Connie's home near the Hope Bay area of North Pender Island. This recording took place outdoors on a beautiful summer afternoon. There will be a few background noises that you'll pick up on during the recording, which I think adds to the ambiance of it, and it was fantastic to record. The voice of the interviewer, myself, has been extracted from this, and the audio has been edited to allow for maximum clarity and continuity in the storytelling. This project has been made possible by funding from Tarmigan Arts. Thank you to Tarmigan Arts for helping to support this project. And now I present to you Volume 2 of the Southern Gulf Islands Heritage Recordings. My name is Constance Louise Octorloni, and I was born on June the 2nd, 1937. I was born in Rosslyn, B.C. My father was working in the smelter in Trail at the time, and it was in the 30s during the Depression, and finding employment was almost impossible. So he was working, playing soccer, lacrosse, and baseball, and he made more money playing different athletic games, and he would get $5 a game, which was very good money in those days. And he went to trail to play, I believe, and then he was elected to play on the Rossland lacrosse team, so he stationed himself in Rossland. And by that time, Kaminko was hiring the fellas that were on these athletic teams, so he was hired on to Kaminko, and he was a smoke tester there for quite a few years. And then the war started, and he went overseas. And my mother and my brother and I, who was younger than I am, he was a year and a half younger than myself, and we went back to my grandfather's farm on Luluaman to stay while my father was overseas. I was invited to Pender Island by Dave's cousin's wife, that was Lynn Grimmer, who was my best girlfriend in high school. And she had come over to work at what was then known as Beauty Rest Lodge on McKinnon Road. And she met John Grimmer, Dave's cousin, and married him. So when the second child arrived, she asked if I would be a godparent to that child. And she had been trying for a while to get Dave and I together to match us up. So I came over. It was in April of. 58, and it was an Easter weekend, and I came over on the Good Friday, had to come over by a ship that left from, it was, I think it was the Lady Rose that left from the end of number two road in Richmond, well, we call it Richmond now, it was Luluan, and came over through the Gulf Islands, and when it stopped at Port Washington, Lynn was there to meet me with her husband, and so was Dave. 
and I was introduced to him at that point. And that night he asked me if I would go for a walk up Mount Elizabeth before Ripple Rock was blown. We must have been up early that day because it was blown at 9.30, so we went for a walk early up to the top of Mount Elizabeth and back to John and, and Lynn's place to see Ripple Rock blown. So you can see our relationship started out with a bang. <laughs> yeah. It was quite something to see that blast on the TV. It was horrendous. And Dave had been working on the ships up and down the coast. So, of course, he knew those rocks personally. He hadn't bumped into them, thank the Lord. But he did know them, and they had transported over them many times. So he was extremely interested, of course. And they was shown so many times over the years, not as much lately, but that blowing of that, those two rocks was, um, well, as we say, it was the largest non-nuclear blast up to that time that had ever been done. Ripple Rock is in Seymour Narrows, if I believe correctly, and it's just north of um, Courtney. Right. Well, Dave moved into Vancouver shortly after I was in nursing at that time and in my third year of nursing at the Vancouver General Hospital. And we started walking every night when I was on day shift. We would walk in the evening and just walk around that area and pick up fudgicles. I don't know why, but we decided we would eat fudgicles. So we'd go to a little corner store and get a fudgicle each and have that. And we just got to know each other. And then one night he came along and he had rented a car. He didn't have a vehicle because, of course, he'd been on the boat, so there was no need for him to have a vehicle at all. And I thought, my goodness, what are we doing here? What, why do we need a vehicle? And we went out for the evening. I can't even remember what we did that evening. Anyway, he finally drove up to Little Mountain and proposed. And I was flabbergasted. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that at all. Yeah, very surprised. We were married in Richmond and the Brig House United Church in, as I say, what we used to call Luan. And we had a great time. As I say, that my wedding dress that's just been on display in the museum, I was supposed to wear my cousin's wedding dress. And two weeks before the wedding, I tried it on it, and all the lace fell apart. Oh, great horrors. And my mother was a wonderful seamstress. She would have sewn a dress for me, and but there wasn't time by now. So off to Sears on the way to a shower that my aunts had put on, because I had quite a few aunts, and they were all there, and plus a few more friends. We stopped at Sears, and it was just known as Sears at that time. And I tried on wedding dresses until we got one in the price range that <laughs> I could afford or my mother could afford. And that's another story, really, because my father gave us $500 to pay for the wedding and 
what was left over we would keep for a wedding present. My mother, being a very frugal person, she had already taken quite a few lessons in flower arranging. So she did all the flowers, and she and my aunts, a couple of aunts, did all the petty fours and the sandwiches and everything for the wedding. She was determined to save as much money as she could for for the two of us. And it was absolutely marvelous of her. She worked extremely hard for us. Yeah, so did my aunts. Yeah. And then we're married, as I said, in the church. And then Bert Brackett, he was the best man. And I couldn't move to go and sign the registry. And everybody was telling me, come on, Connie, get moving. And finally, I said to Dave, Bert, standing on my dress, I can't move. <laughs> so we got Bert off my dress, of course, and then went, proceeded to sign the registry and then went home. And we had the, the reception at my parents' home in Richmond. Yeah. Bert Brackett is Harry's younger brother. Yeah. But he since died. Yeah. Well, Dave didn't want me to go to work, first of all. He wanted me to stay at home. So I stayed at home for a couple of months, but that was boring. So I went and applied for a job. At that time, I asked if I could start on Monday, and they said, well, the beginning of the month is Sunday. Would you start on Sunday? So in that day and age, it wasn't difficult to get a job, to say the least. And Dave was working for Pacific Coast Wholesale Drugs at that time. And he was working in the warehouse. And they had a great team of people that they had working there. He really enjoyed working with those those people. So I was working on the wards at different shifts, of course, at the general hospital. And we lived right across the road. Our back alley came right out opposite the um, entrance to the hot part of the hospital I was working in. So in the evening, when I was finished afternoon shift. Dave would be waiting for me there at the end of the alleyway to escort me home. <laughs> Not that we were only two houses down, but he would be there waiting for me, which was pretty nice to see. It really was. And I worked for a year and a half, two years, and then became pregnant. And, of course, we weren't allowed to work when we were pregnant in the hospital. We had to um, retire when we were pregnant. That wasn't allowed, or at least not until you showed anyway, and that, that certainly you weren't allowed to work then. So I worked actually until Christmas time, and I had morning sickness so badly that I was running to the hopper all the time. Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> they certainly knew I was pregnant, and then I retired because it was just... Um, uncomfortable, to say the least. Yeah. So then Deb was born in July, and we were, of course, very happy to have a, a little one. And we had to move to another location because it was the one we were in was too small. And at that time, 
We had another student with us, too, because Dave wanted to go back to school. So he went back to school. I can't remember for how long for, but it was Sprout Shaw, I think, that he went to. And he acquired his grades to pass grade 12 and one course in the first year of university. And he was still working. They encouraged him at Pacific Coast Drugs to do that. And he went to school in the morning and he worked in the afternoon. And then just when he was going to go further into his education and I was going to go back to work, I found out I was pregnant again. And <laughs> so he continued working. And then after Jennifer was born, our second daughter, in May, Dave wanted to come move back to Pender Island. And I had tried to keep him in Vancouver, but he really was a changed person when we moved to Pender Island. I realized he was so different. This was his home, and this is where he had to be. And I fully understood that. But we came with the two little ones. Deb wasn't two yet when we first came. And Jennifer was six weeks old, I think, when we moved to Pender. And we moved into Uncle Lori's little cottage and paid $25 a month rent at that time. So that would have been 63. So we lived there for seven years while Dave was working for John Schoons, first of all, doing building and different things. They actually built the, um, what was called at that time, the house that's opposite the tennis courts at Poets Cove. They built those for the crews that were coming to work at, I can't remember what it was called. It's changed so many different names now, but certainly ones in Poets Cove. Bedwell Harbor was one of the names that it's had over the years. Yeah, they also built Helen Allison's house. Helen and Bob Allison's house, too. Those are two I can remember. And then Dave worked at the store for a while. A couple of years, he took one day of a lesson at, I think it was a Safeway store in Victoria, where Ralph Smith had arranged for him to go to get a butchering lesson. And so he became the butcher at the Hope Bay store and the gas jockey and fuel jockey and whatever else had to be done. So a combination of jobs he had, plus anything else that had to be done. And he did that for a couple of years. And then he retired, and that was when the Otter Bay Ferry went in, and John asked him to go back and work for him again, trucking, while they were working, putting in the Otter Bay Ferry dock. So then he worked for Don, and then Don Grimmer was working with his father, and Don knew that his father was going to retire. Percy Grimmer was going to retire, so he asked Dave if he would come and work with him. So Don and Dave started working together, and then they took up the papers to become Pender Allen Builders Limited. And I think that was in 68 or 69 they did that amalgamated the company and they worked together for many years and not too long after they started there Max Allen 
gave up the backhoe that he had been running on the island, and so Dave and Don decided to buy a backhoe, and Dave ended up running that backhoe most of the time. Well, Don didn't run it, but Dave did all the backhoe work that came along. The first couple of years on Pender Island, we lived in the little cottage. It was quite hectic with two little ones. And then a year later, Greg was born as well. He was born in 64. So as I say, um, have often said, it was like bottoms up because before Deb turned three, I had three little ones. And it kept me very busy, to say the least. But I also found it lonely because there was no adult conversation or very little adult conversation. Dave was working very hard. And at the evening, if he had time, we had acquired, Aunt Alice had given us this property that we have, and she was extremely kind to us. And with the time that Dave had, it was heavily treed, so Dave fell the trees and sold the firewood, and that gave us some money to put in the foundation of our house. And people at that time gave us a very hard time when we started building our house because it's an 1,800-square-foot home, and at that time, they thought we were going to put up a new hall <laughs> because the Hope Bay Hall had been condemned right opposite us, and it was going to come down. And so our house was going up right opposite the old hall. But Dave hauled the logs out. He cut, he found logs. John, by that time, was putting a, a road into, he had a contract to put a road into Trincomalee. And Dave got a lot of the cedar logs out of that property where John was putting the road in. And he hauled those all to our, our house. And I was supposed to debark them. Well, occasionally I could do that if I had a few minutes. Or if it was different times of the year, and I've forgotten what time of the year, the bark wouldn't come off, just wouldn't come off. It would really cling. And so those logs I had to leave for Dave to do, but I did do some. Then he started hauling them down to our property here and putting them up slowly after getting uh, the foundation in and getting the flooring in. And slowly the house took form and shape. Yeah. Dave's relatives were older than my parents when I first moved to Pender Island, and they were our closest neighbors. And they were older, as I say, than my parents. So it was a bit lonely, to say the least, for the first few years, until I can remember Greg was given a wagon, and the highlight of our week, I think, was when I trooped the three children in the wagon down to the store, and we bought our groceries for the week. And we trooped down to Hope Bay store, and everything went on the bill. You paid your bill at the end of the month, but everything that you bought pretty well, your clothes, your boots, we rarely went to town. 
rarely went to town. And my mother was a godsend there, too. She would make clothes. She made an awful lot of clothes for our children. So we were very lucky in that respect. Clothes for myself, she often made my clothes as well. And I guess when we went into Vancouver to visit my parents, Dave would get his clothes that were necessary for her year, probably. We couldn't afford to do anything more. We used to spend our holidays just staying with my parents in Richmond. My father used to put his change in in our kids' piggy banks, and it was a good thing he did because I had to borrow from them every month, and I made sure at the beginning of each month I paid them all back because I knew I'd have to borrow again by the end of that month. So, yeah. It was... Um, Marvelous life for our children, though. When we were in the cottage, they, we had chickens, we had ducks, we had rabbits, we had, I think it was the pigeons came later when we were here at this location. But the children just ran outside. They were always outside playing. And the girls had buggies, but they never kept their dolls in the buggies. They always had straw in them and snakes. They much prefer snakes and wildlife to to dolls that didn't have any life as far as they were concerned. And Greg went along with them. Whatever they were doing, he trailed along with them. They had a marvelous life as far as I'm concerned. When we moved here in 1970, May the 1st, the kids, they were a little older, and they started wandering in the bush. And they would build forts in the bush. They had a raft that Dave would build for them at Hope Bay every spring. And they were always out in the woods doing something. They climbed trees. They, as I say, build forts. They would do all sorts of things. And I never worried about them. Not once did you ever think about what they were up to or what they were doing. They would come home at mealtime, and uh, when their stomachs told them, that was it. They just ran and played. Uncle Laurie had 80 acres at that time here, the, the farm, and they just explored. He owned a lot of Mount Elizabeth, too, so they just roamed all over that property where they went where they wanted to go, wherever. Mount Elizabeth leaves Clam Bay Road and then goes up along towards Port Washington and really comes down just past the Cravens place, Shepherd's Croft. It comes down about there. That, I think, is about the end of Mount Elizabeth. But Uncle Laurie owned this portion from Corbett Road to Clam Bay Road. He owned that. So the kids just roamed all in this section. And they watched the eagles' nests. They were, I know Jennifer was one that used to watch the eagles' nest and the young ones up in the eagles' nest. And uh, they watched all the wildlife. When I was living in Vancouver, we were allowed to go for about a half a block, and that was all I was allowed to go when I was a youngster. And I think I compare. Nowadays, when people take their children in for swimming, take them for skating lessons, take them for swimming lessons, 
and that type of thing. We were very fortunate because the children were able to get their lessons here on Pender Island. We had, they had swimming lessons in the summer, but it was in one of the private pools, and one of the girls that came for the summer taught them. So we were very lucky. They had a wonderful life, as I say. The fairies used to come into Hope Bay, of course, twice a week or whatever it was. That was the CPR fairy that Dave generally talks about mostly coming in. And, of course, the fairies came in before Otter Bay was built. They came into Port Wash and to Hope Bay and um, also to South Pender. I think that it was the first weekend I came to Pender Island that Dave invited me out for a cup of coffee and a, a piece of apple pie, I think it was. And we went to his aunt's coffee shop. And the Aunt Alice had built the panabode that's right here at Hope Bay, practically on the road, because at that time you were allowed to do so. And it was April of 58 that Dave took me in there. And it had been open as a coffee shop for a short while before I came to Pender Island. But that Panabode, they only worked there as a coffee shop for a couple of years. But Aunt Alice and Aunt Addie and Andy Myrtle all used to work in that coffee shop. But they found it too much work. So, so they finally closed it down. But it was only... It wasn't open for meals in the evening. It was only open for coffee and for lunch. Aunt Alice owned the house that's right next door here. First of all, that was where they, when they moved from their nursing home in West Vancouver, Aunt Alice and Andy Myrtle were both nurses. And they moved with one of their patients. They brought one of their patients to Pender Island, and they nursed him here for until he died and they lived in what belongs to the Holofskys at the moment and it was while they were there that they decided that they would build a coffee shop and see if they could make it viable and as I say it was too much work so they gave that up finally and then Aunt Alice sold the house to the Amy's family the Jack Amy's family and they lived there for quite a few years. And Aunt Alice and Andy Myrtle moved into the coffee shop and had added a bedroom and a utility room onto it now. When Greg was five years old, I was asked if I would work at the Hope Bay store. And I was surprised. I didn't expect to work somehow, but I certainly did. And loved working there. It was great fun. Got to talk to adults. <laughs> and it was great fun to use my mental ability. I wasn't very good at stocking the shelves, but I could add up the bills and fill the requests of the people and just enjoyed working out of the home again. Oh, I started working just before we moved into the house, into our home in 1970. And... Of course, it was just a, a second to, to run up here to have lunch or whatever and check on the kids. And I generally had a cousin looking after them. 
so that they had someone looking after them on their summer holidays and that. But I really enjoyed working in the store, to say the least. And I worked there for oh, about five years, I think, something like that. And then at the end of 1969, Homer and Jean Rogers moved onto the island and he was practicing. It was the first doctor we'd had living on the island that I was aware of. Then Pharmacare came in and he and Jean couldn't cope with all the dispensing of the drugs and the, all the forms that had to be filled out for Pharmacare. So he asked me if I would work for them. So I started doing that. And I really enjoyed being back in the medical field and using my brain power in that respect. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun working with them. I learned an awful lot about saving things. They had gone, well, especially Jean, had gone through the Depression and gone through the war. So you saved every elastic band, every bit of string, every bit of paper. You realize that people who have at one time in their lives had very little, how they clung on to everything. They didn't want to let go of anything and started to save. It surprised me. But I learned a lot from them. Yeah. I worked with them until Homer retired and Dr. Don Sutherland came in and took over the practice. And then we moved the medical clinic or Don moved the medical clinic up to the basement of the home opposite the Pender Lodge. It was part of the Pender Lodge. Pender Lodge it's now Acadia place. That was where Beauty Rest Lodge was originally, the original place. I think that and Roseland were the only, oh no, because Mrs. Craddock had Waterlee as well as a place at the end of McKinnon Row where people went for vacations. The house this way on the waterfront has a tennis court and it had a swimming pool. I don't know if the pool is still there or not. That was Beauty Rest Lodge. And over the years, they had bought the the property behind them belonged to the lodge as well. And when the Americans that came up and they first bought Otter Bay Marina, and then they bought the lodge, and they built that house for themselves because they had four young children. And it was Ramel. That was her name, Ramel. And Ramel offered to look after Greg when I was working. So that worked out very well because she had four children and Greg needed socializing when the two girls were off at school. So it worked out very well for Greg. He enjoyed it. And Dave used to pick him up quite often from there. And Don Sutherland moved the practice to the basement of that place where Martha lives actually now. It's a big panopode place. If you went down McKinnon Road, you would see the, the house without any difficulty. And we had the, the basement of that house for our clinic. And then I think it was in 81, when Dave and I were in England on holidays, that they moved into the clinic at its present location. When the Marlers gave the property for the clinic, they were awfully kind people. They gave the property for the school and they gave the property for the clinic as well out of that piece of property and the son and his wife Simone live 
on that the point there now yeah and i had my office of little pharmacy was the where the dentist has his office now but it was a little larger than what the area they have i was dispensing the drugs under the auspices of the doctors because i wasn't a pharmacist of course just a nurse and i was also doing injections ecgs different lab work whatever needed to be done i was there to do more or less to assist whatever the doctors if they were doing minor operations or whatever then i would would be assisting with that as well yes it was one day an elderly lady came in and she said to me you know i don't have anybody that will call me by my first name anymore so from then on i started calling the older ladies by their first name and they seemed to appreciate that because it had been quite some time i guess since some of them especially had been called by their first name yeah right Our social life was very active. We had huge parties. It wasn't unusual. I know the first deck party we had, which was 1980, I think it says on the little plot. We had 50 people there, and we had hamburgers for the people that came for our decks. And we didn't have any lawn chairs or chairs or anything to sit on, but we had horses by that time. So we hauled a bunch of hay bales down and put. the horse blankets on top of them and that was what we had for seating at that time we had several large parties of 50 or so in the house as well and we'd go to parties at the harkers where they would have at least that many if not more mary and ted morrison had parties as well the ripleys had parties helen young had parties a lot of house parties that were with people that were a lot older than ourselves and from certainly different backgrounds if we had lived in vancouver we would never have met these people they were university professors douglas harker had been working i think for woodwards just before he retired but he had and his brother i gather had started st george's private boys school in vancouver and he worked there for years and he was extremely kind to our children douglas harker was he called in a helicopter one time just so that the children could see what a helicopter was about and i don't think he took them up for rides at that time but they were allowed to see the plane and the pilot explained it all to them he brought in the hovercraft and the children were allowed to to climb all over that to see what it was like He brought in a biologist so to teach the children the life of the shoreline at low tide. He was forever thoughtful in that respect. And Cyril Ripley was one that when we had the girls had the pony club, he helped tremendously with the, the pony club camps and how to stake out the horses because he had been in the cavalry. All these people the apples were also they were military but they were all very willing to come and to help our children 
So our two girls were very involved with the Pony Club, as were a number of the youngsters on the island at that time. And Greg took up golf. He didn't particularly like horses, which was wonderful because he had the golf course. You know, he would go over and play golf, and we'd take him over and pick him up again. But the girls, we would take them off to tournaments. One of the, the Shirley Mander had a horse trailer that, had room for a couple of, I think it was just two horses at that time. And she would take them off, make several trips into Sandwichton Fair and the fairgrounds. And they would have pony club camp in there, the girls would. And (laughs) we would go to visit them one day of the week that they were there. And the horses were just gleaming. They were, oh, gorgeous looking horses by the time they had been so well-groomed with all the week. And the tack was also gleaming like you wouldn't believe. The tack was just gorgeous. And you'd look at the girls, and they were just filthy. (laughs) They were. (laughs) Before we went to get them and bring them home, they took them to the beach and told them they had to have a swim. (laughs) So (laughs) you could see why. The kids were all so black. But the horses and the tack were beautiful, just beautiful. <laughs> Marginal Bowerman were one couple that were awfully good to us again. They used to come and play bridge with us one day a week when we were still in the little cottage. And that was awfully kind of them, I can remember. They were very nice. But when we had parties at the Port Wash Hall, this was after the Hope Bay Hall came down. We would have, at that time, we, the women were all wearing long gowns. And so we, we would troop up to the hall in our long gowns. And we had a wonderful time in the old port wash hall. But to go out to the washroom, to say the least, which was an outhouse in the, the damp, wet grass and muddy path <laughs> was something else again. But I can remember one just after New Year's, I believe, I'm sure, pretty sure we had already celebrated New Year's. The doors were flung open, and Marion Sketch was there in her gown that didn't quite fit anymore. Anyway, she was there, and Ralph Sketch came up through and into the hall riding his pony. <laughs> and um, that was quite an event, to say the least. And I can remember talking of the sketches when the Legion was first opened. The Perks came over to open it. He was the lieutenant governor at the time. And he came over to open it. And they had a platform where that lieutenant governor Perks was speaking at the time, opening the hall. And Mrs. Perks was on the platform in her chair and several other dignitaries, or they thought they were dignitaries at that time anyway. And the sketches arrived late, as usual. They were often late. And they brought their dog with them. And it was a big, black Newfoundland dog. And they didn't have it tied up or leashed either. And the dog went pounding up onto the platform and jumped up on top of Mrs. Perk's dress and into her lap, practically. But the thing was too big. It couldn't get all into her lap. But this is where it landed up. And it caused quite a commotion, to say the least, in the middle of the opening of the the Legion. 
Oh, the school, yeah, when the school was first built, there were a lot of dances that we had there, and again, we wore long gowns, and it was all quite formal. And they had a band. There was by that time a little band of people that uh, from Pender Island that played. We had great evenings there and many dances there, I can remember. There were at least three or four a year that we went to that were quite formal balls, that we call them. <laughs> they were great fun, too. Of course, the community turned out for those. It was the thing to do. And everybody turned out for everything that was a community. Um, the community spirit was terrific. The fall fair, everybody turned out and worked at the fall fair. The garden party at the church, everybody turned out and worked at the garden party. Any funeral, everybody turned up for. The strawberry teas, which they started out being the United Church put them on in Dave's mother's garden. And everybody turned up for that. You just went wherever there was a do. If any organization put something on, you um, went to it. It was not just expected. You wanted to go. <laughs> yeah, to, just to socialize. I think there was one or two events that were doubled up on. And that was enough to delete the number of people at each event. Everybody was torn as to which event to go to. And so that's when the Pender Post started up. And Jean Bradley and her father did that. They started the Pender Post. Yeah, it was their idea and their, their function that they did that. Yes, when I was working for Jean Rogers, she more or less intimated one day that I and the children should go to church. Oh, well, mm-hmm. I finally thought, oh, all right, okay. So I went off to church by myself. Children were busy. Of course, they had their weekends planned. And when I got there and afterwards, after the first morning of being there, I thought, oh, isn't this marvelous? You get an hour of peace and quiet. <laughs> so... I had belonged to the United Church in Richmond growing up. But the United Church had closed down here for I don't know how long. Anyway, when I shortly after we moved to Pender. So it wasn't functioning, so I continued to go to the Anglican Church. And it, it has been a backbone for me. It meant a lot to me to be able to go to church and to help out there, most definitely, but it has brought a lot of, of enjoyment and quiet and calming for me in my life. It's meant a lot. As I say, it's meant a very lot to me. Yeah. I enjoy going there and working there. Now I, d I just work in the kitchen, more or less, but I think I've held pretty well all the different positions you could hold there at one time or another so it's been a love New Year's Eve 1961 there were many of us gathered there in the, the Ohio Bay Hall and 
evidently someone had forgotten to get a liquor license. And Bev says that Daryl Jorgensen phoned Bev and told her that the police knew that they hadn't gotten a liquor license for that event. And John, I gather John Schoons and Jack Amy's were more or less organizing it, the event, and one or the other had said they would get the liquor license and they had forgotten. But John and Jack decided, oh, well, we'll be all right anyway. So we had the dance and we had a great time. Everybody was having a very good time. And all of a sudden, the front door flew open, the kitchen door flew open, and the back door flew open, and three policemen came raiding into the hall and confiscated the liquor, and the children that were there were shuffled out quickly, and to say the least, the people were somewhat irritated and annoyed. And the the police, as I say, confiscated the liquor, and of course, People decided, well, that was enough. They certainly dampened our spirits, so decided to head home. So majority of the people started heading out, and the policemen took all the liquor in their cardboard boxes that they brought and started to head back to the boat at the dock at Hope Bay. And they weren't very pleased. Well, first of all, they started singing to the policeman, for he's a jolly good fellow. But then Dave's brother was the one that started saying Heil Hitler to them as well. And one of the policemen turned, and he I don't know what he was going to do because he was grabbed very quickly by the corporal and grabbed, and you come back here. That We're not going to start anything more. And they went onto their boat, and they stayed on their boat for I don't know how long, but they stayed. They didn't leave right away. But it broke up the party, and then the police finally left. But there was no more party after that. That certainly dampened our spirits, yes. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any money. You know, we had very, very little income when we first moved to Pender Island. But we, we lived on venison and cod and clams, oysters. Um, the odd grouse and pheasant. We had a diet with our garden. We had a diet that was healthier than you could have had, I'm sure, living in the city by a long way. Dave did the hunting every year. He used to get three venison a year, and we would cut it up and freeze it, of course, and then we we ate it that way. He'd go clamming. The kids used to tell him that it was time to go and get some little shells. They used to always call the clams little shells. We want some little shells, Dad. <laughs> he would go off and go clamming. Low tide was at nighttime when he would have to go to get clams. Oysters, of course, was low tide again because you could normally get them just in the winter. And the odd pheasant or the odd grouse, if he saw, of course, he got that too. And then we had chickens. We had chickens for a while. And until the mink got in when we were here. We had lost, what was it, 21 chickens one night. I think we were only left with three three chickens, yes. And they were so terrified, we finally gave them back to the fellow we'd bought them from. But as I say, as a diet, it was phenomenal. 
Well, I'm not a very much of a gardener. My mother was the gardener in our family. She was a terrific gardener, and she liked her garden, and she liked to do it herself, really. I was allowed to take the scissors and prune the hedge, her rock hedge. That was about all I was allowed to do. So I know the first time I, I weeded Dave's garden, I pulled out the biggest plant because I thought it must be a weed. Well, it wasn't. It was a broccoli. That was <laughs> So I have tried to weed the garden occasionally, but the garden has generally been Dave's forte. Yeah, right. But we've had some big gardens, yeah. We were building our house to get ourselves going financially. We didn't, as I said, we didn't have any money. The, the credit union, there was a lady who lived on Armadale Road, and how and why she did it, I don't know. And I can't remember her name. But we went down, and she, or Dave went down. Of course, it was taken out in Justin Dave's name in those days. We got $5,000 from her. Now, that was a lot of money in, in our day and age. Yeah. And it, I'm sure Dave would go down and pay her every month. That We would just pay it until we paid it off. And then we got another $5,000 loan from her as well. And we paid that off. But that was all, that was all the mortgage we had on this house. And you couldn't do that today either with the bylaws that are in place. You have to have your house up and be approved in a short time. I don't know what they are exactly. But we were very fortunate in that respect as well because, as I say, we moved in. Our house was not finished, but it was livable as far as we were concerned. Yeah. Now I think they want you to have an occupancy permit before you move in. We wouldn't have qualified for that at all. No. Dave's family, the Octolonies, are related to David Hope, and he was born in Jedburgh, Scotland, and came in 1833 and came to Pender Island in 1872. He preempted land on North Pender Island with Noah Buckley, and I believe there was a third fellow who preempted property closer to the area in Magic Lake and the north end of South Pender Island, or what is now South Pender Island. And Rutherford Hope arrived, his brother, David's brother, arrived in 1876. Then David Hope died, and Rutherford sent word to his sister Helen in Scotland to come out because there was too much land for him to use. And she was married to Lawrence Wallace Octoloni. So Helen and Lawrence Wallace Octoloni traveled from St. Andrews to Pender Island with their children in 1882. And their children were James William 
Octoloni and Elizabeth Bryce Byrne Octoloni. And Elizabeth Bryce Byrne married Washington Grimmer when she was 17 years old. By that time, after David Hope died, Noah Buckley left Pender Allen and sold his property to Washington Grimmer. And through the different connections were the Archelonis are related to the Amys, the Bradleys, the Brackets, the Clegg, the Grimmers, and the Hamiltons. Our children are Deborah Constance Octoloni and Jennifer May Spencer now, and she is the one that has our one and only grandchild, and that's Ryan Justin Spencer. And then there's Greg, Gregory David Octoloni as well, our son. I can't thank God enough for bringing me into Dave's life and for bringing me to Pender Island, where I've had, as far as I'm concerned, I've had an absolutely marvelous life. It's been just absolutely wonderful. Very, very fortunate. The title music for this project is Blue Sunset by Frank Enya. All other music written and performed by Ben McConkie. Thank you very much again to Ptarmigan Arts for helping to support this, and thank you for listening.